Hola queridos amigos, este es un breve anuncio para todos aquellos en la audiencia que habla o se siente más cómoda con el idioma español. Muchas gracias por su audiencia y apoyo. Estamos en proceso de crear varios episodios para los oyentes de habla española. Me complace decirlo para los miembros. Es importante tener en cuenta que esta organización, la Unión de Círculos Legítimos de Francia, de la que somos solo un delegado, tiene un servicio en español muy sensible y activo. Y por supuesto, su majestad más cristiana comparte personalmente la rica cultura española, al igual que su maravillosa esposa venezolana. Recuerde, nuestro mensaje es el mismo, ya sea en inglés, francés, español o chino. Buscamos la justicia, el estado de derecho, la seguridad económica, el apoyo a la familia, la difusión de las enseñanzas de nuestra Santa Madre Iglesia en todos los aspectos de la sociedad. Buscamos devolver a su trono al Hijo Mayor de la Iglesia. Dios los bendiga a todos. Whether I say, hi, how are you? Bonjour, ¿cómo se va? Buenos días, ¿cómo estás? Or, ni hao, maybe, añaseo. Hamsanmira. Whether I say any of those, they all mean the same thing. Hi, hello, I hope you're well. We would like to invite you to look around your house, your block, your neighborhood, your city, maybe even your state, to read the newspaper, if you still do that, read an internet blog, you're more likely to do that, or watch mainstream news on television. I hope you're not doing so much of that anymore because it's pure dreck. By observation, I think, no, by observation, definitely, you will conclude the following as we have concluded them, that this seems like it is the very best of times. However, it's filled with the very worst sorts of people. This is an age of incredible science and knowledge, maybe even wisdom. It's also an age of foolishness and anti-knowledge, of hateful ignorance. This is an epic of belief, but it is being torn asunder by hordes of unbelievers. This is a sunrise of light. It is also an eclipse of darkness. It is the springtime of our hope, but looks to become the winter of our despair. Things seem to line up, forming a road to heaven, at least a blueprint on how to get there, a map. But in our guts, we feel like, in short order, We're all going straight to hell. If we could turn back time to the good old days when the mama sang us to sleep, but now we're stressed out. If we could turn back time to the good old days when the mama sang us to sleep, but now we're stressed out. I, of course, uh, before any of you called the copyright police, uh, that is in the public domain now, Charles Dickens, thank you.
and uh, I acknowledge where I got it from. I think that's the best, uh, that's the best paragraph of that story. Um, the rest is uh, pretty much unreadable. But I hope this is not unlistenable. Welcome, my friend, lady or gentleman. You're all the first installment of our season finale, if you can believe it. I can't. We have finished the first season. May God be so kind as to give us many more. And I didn't think we would get to this point. Two years ago today, my friend, talked much about the genesis of the program, and I've told you nothing about myself, nor his expat revealed like of him, nor of Monsieur, because we have, um, we have very busy lives and we're responsible for families, and we, uh, we must make a living. Um, so we, by necessity, uh, when dealing with topics like this, we keep our cards close to our chest. But I can tell you, um, I'll put an ace on the table, that it was two years ago, almost to the day, that we started, all of us together, collaborating, communicating, and crafting the Fleur de Lis Club. And from that club, from the club we are all proud to, proud to have founded, and which I am delighted to have welcomed, welcomed some of you to as members, it's from the club that we get this podcast, Unmasking the Revolution. And we have spent a year indeed going over it in fine detail. The Kingdom of France, I hope you learned about that. The sources of the revolution, I learned so much about that. Monsieur is an awesome source of information, isn't he? In short, it has been a, a roller coaster. It's taken me, it's taken me to absolutely dizzying mental highs. It's taken me to very frightening spiritual lows as I see the state of the world revealed to us. Uh, I think we're having a theme of duality today. It's coming over me. But I want to say that most of all, I am grateful for you. I don't buy into this, uh, this view of a great form of public opinion. That's nonsense. There are the people in control. There have always been people in control, and they manufacture the narrative. Um, if you don't believe me, then try protesting something that's not already kind of uh, approved, be protested by the lords of the universe, and you'll see how quickly it goes. But you have decided to do something extraordinary. In the first place, you decided to think critically about a revolution that most likely you knew little about, and you probably had less of an interest than you knew. But you decided that something about this seemed important. From the very first opening episode, from the pilot episode, you understood what we were trying to get across to you, that the world was not meant to have turned out the way it is unfolding right now before our very eyes. We're not supposed to be living in this world. Elements of it are there. Now, of course, this goes back all the way to original sin, to the fall. But for our purposes, had 1789 and its precursors not happened, had there not been a French Revolution, I don't know how there not could have had given the forces that were hell-bent, key choice of words, on causing it. But if it had not happened, Christendom as such would be together. Europe, by and large, would be a pious Catholic continent, although there would be just as, uh, there'd be the Protestants in the North as well. I have no doubt that certain elements would have become more secular because that's the direction of the revolution. Um, the revolution itself in 1789 and so on, and its subsequent aftershocks 
those are just more pressure on the points of application they'd already chosen. But I maintain, you're, we would have Christendom. We would have justice. Now, you all know how many laws we have in the United States, and I can only imagine in other countries how many laws you all have as well. They're making hundreds every single day, and we don't know the ones we have now. Is that justice? How can we have justice when no one knows what the different conflicting laws will be? That's, that's the reason lawyers make such a very good living, because they're able to parse this information, and it's not easy information to parse. It was a time of justice. Justice is the good having good done to them and the wicked having like returned to them. But it's very, it's not proactive, the justice of the king, the justice of God. You know the word kingdom, a kingdom, where that comes from? Doom is an old Anglo-Saxon word, doom. It means the fate or the reach or what is encompassed. The kingdom kingdom is the lands within the authority of the king and within the authority of the king or the queen doesn't really matter it's in unless you have the salic law as some monarchies have chosen as the descendant of the holy roman empire and the roman empire before it the kingdom of france had done they had a salic law um nonetheless be it king or queen what is within their ability to either punish negatively or reward positively that's the land of the justice of the king, within the authority of the king. That's simply what it is. As Monsieur has pointed out so many times for us, you don't need a constitution written down for that kind of thing. We have the Ten Commandments, at least we had them. Um, I know that there's still a few brave judges keeping them up in their courthouses. Uh, don't know how long that's going to last, but we had the Ten Commandments. That's the only written constitution humanity's ever really needed. The rest of it, um, was uh, very intuitive. If you steal, you're going to get punished, and it was corporal punishment. There were no prisons in the middle in the medieval ages, save for the odd political prisoner, revolutionary, heretic, or that sort of thing. But it was the exception to the rule. If you stole something, you got whipped. If you uh, stole something twice after being whipped, they would do other things to you. They would they would indeed mutilate you. But they didn't want to have a prison system. Perhaps they knew. Oh, wouldn't that be uh, something? I'd like to hear what the radical Marxists in the campus would have to say about that. The people living in a so-called feudal system, which is uh, loaded with negative connotations, I would call it a, a, a system of a linkage system. We'll call it that. We'll use some political speak. Uh, we'll call feudalism a European linkage system, the, the premier European linkage system. ELS. So you have this ELS, right, that binds the king to the subjects and the subjects to the king in a very uh, reciprocal relationship. There's give and take. People in the medieval ages were far, far more likely to get justice, whether in the positive or the negative sense, than we are today. We don't have law. We don't, excuse me, we don't have justice. We have regulation. We have codes. We have laws. And they're enforced by people who know less about them probably than we do, which is all to the good from the government's point of view, because uh, they like a kind of, well, is our friend Eric Arthur Blair, George Orwell said, Beatle-like people to do this type of work in 1984. Nonetheless, it's been two years. We've come a long way. Thanks to you. That itself 
I hope you will take is a profound accolade. Those of you who have moved beyond listening to become members have taken it to a whole nother level. It's providential, I think. As you know from the material members, uh, the materials you've already received are tangible reasons, material reasons, career reasons, individual reasons for joining the Flirtily Club. But fundamentally, you did so because you knew in your heart of hearts it was right. You knew, like we here did before, that the revolution's coming for you. And you believe me, it is. It may not be tomorrow, may not be next week, though as a rule, the more practicing you are in a Christian faith, the more traditional you are in, a, uh, in the maintenance of a older model, a more time-tested model of household socioeconomic matters, shall we say, you're putting a bigger target on your, on your head. You're raising your hand and saying, come get me first, mon uh, revolution monster. I'm right here. But no matter who you are, where you're from, it's like that old song by the police, they'll be watching you. I'll be watching you, and then they'll be coming for you. And then you realized, I suspect, I've not heard from all of you yet. I I'm delighted to hear from those of you who, uh, who I have spoken to, as is everyone else, incidentally. It's coming for all of us. And unless we prepare ourselves to encounter it on ground that we choose, it will track us down on ground that it chooses. So this is something that had to be done. No one looked for this, you know, lady or gentlemen, you're all my friend. Not one person had expected this, I don't think. The saints, certainly, but the, not one person that is, I'm speaking a bit melodramatically here, of course. I, I'm in a mood of melodramatic, uh, melod, melodrama today. I'm in a mood of melodrama. Aside from a few knights in shining, shining armor in France who had kept the legitimist movement alive, aside from his most Christian majesty, who I cannot imagine the pressures, I cannot imagine what pressures he deals with on an everyday basis. I, if you think that the insanity and the spite and the venom that the radicals and some, probably most of the liberals, liberals in the classical sense, uh, the two sides, the twain halves of revolutionism, if you think they've gone after Trump in a absolutely loathsome manner, you're right. Absolutely, you're right. But Trump, in a way, is a, a Democrat small d. He's playing by their rules. Sometimes I wish he wouldn't, but he's playing by their rules. And as a consequence, uh, he will have a... Um, it's already on the tea leaves are there. They're not tea leaves. Those are tea leaves. They've been sprayed down with paint, with uh, you know, spray paint. Tea leaves with spray paint all over them. The writing's there. When he's gone, it'll all go back to the way it was. The more radical, uh, the more radical, headlong, breakneck, out of control, sparks flying off the rail journey into uh, into a place that none of us are going to like because it's quite hell. I applaud you. I myself had spent years and years, I think I've discussed this on the program, but I'll, I'll mention it now. As an academic, in my undergraduate work, I was first turned on to what the French Revolution was. I saw the, in, the economic and the incongruous economic 
links. Nothing matched up. It was all it was all stuff said by people who the more I read it, I despise so-called professional historians and economists who were really just died, you know, that died in the wool. They were died red Marxists. So, but in reading them, by the time I got to graduate school, I had gotten two legitimist authors. So this was something that was going on quite a while for me. And additionally, um, I was also, I was also, this was a field of study for me. Um, economically speaking, I studied quite a bit of the French Revolution as, as part of what I just had to do. But you, you are becoming a knight in shining armor. Because I think now that you have a stake in the game to our members, now that you have a stake in the game, you see, and I think you're seeing more every day, just what is out there in front of us. But never forget, we have God on our side, the living God, not an idol, not a one of me to brass or plastic or nowadays collagen down there in uh, Rodeo Drive. You have taken the side of the living God. And the living God, as scripture gives us ample evidence of, when he wants things to happen, they happen. When he wants to make signs known, those signs are known. And I do not for one second believe that all of Christendom that's left, what there is left of it, is going to withdraw into itself to an even smaller, it will become an even more statistically insignificant number than it already is. And we have some stories I'm going to read briefly to go over this. I don't believe we're going to go under a rock like a lizard and close it over us and wait to see in a million years if they're uh, ready to hear the good word again. I am praying for a miracle. I do not want to see a smaller and holier church. I want to see a booming, larger, holier church. I do not want to see um, a few more people attend mass on Sunday or even, you know, Protestant church. I want to see the pews overflowing. I do not want some milk toast in milk toast at best and drooling insane at works like Renfield from Bram Stoker's Dracula, canapé or dare master, something like that. I don't want it. I want, and I want to support a restoration. You know who is that we support here. You know who the candidate for that restoration is. He's already the king. We simply must recognize him as the legitimate and true and present and valid and potent and effectual and rightful and needed king, the most Christian king of France, Sa Majesté Très Chrétien Louis XX. And since we're on the topic of it, I might as well say a few words about it. That is to say, the criticism the show received. The criticism we've received has been thoughtful and hasn't been a huge, uh, there hasn't been a huge amount of it. Thank heaven for small mercy. Uh, it's the truth. And of those two things, I think I'm most grateful for the thoughtful criticism. So thanks heaven for small mercies. I would like to address though some criticism we got. And as is the case, I'm sure with all these types of situations, it's one or two people who go out and, and cause a big ruckus. And this was criticism about our derisive uh, attitude towards two stories we covered at the beginning of this program. People said that, oh, you're so mean to those people. Why were you so mean? Why were you so sneering in your critique? I did a sneer just now to kind of do the acting. I wasn't sneering at the people who wrote the, the hate letters. You needn't worry. Why did you do this? Because they're sick and they're psychos and they deserve it. 
there are people in Britain, as the article demonstrates, serving up placenta in a rich brown butter sauce, in a fruit smoothie. You know what a placenta is, of course, it's the afterbirth, after a baby's born. Grind it up, fry it, put some shallots with it. I hope you're throwing up because I almost did just saying that. Um, that's insane. And if you think that's heavy-handed, critics, and if you think that um, me mocking people who are as psycho and sick as that is bad, then put this in your pipes and smoke it. And I hope it doesn't push you over uh, into OD territory. I would have her locked up. I'd have her clapped in irons. I would have her put in a public square where she could beg forgiveness for her filthy cannibalism. And I would say that we don't do this in a civilized country, nor will we allow people to eat other people. I'm sorry to all of Hell's Gourmets that are really looking forward to eating their neighbor, um, but no, you can't do that. Or at least you wouldn't be able to in a world run by moi. But don't worry, we won't have a world run by moi. We will have a world, hopefully, run by le roi. So um, hang tight. Let's go to break. I'm going to come back. You're going to come back. We're going to come back. Monsieur's going to join us. We're going to have a chat about, oh, yes, the Bastille, the storming of the Bastille and Bastille Day, fake history, fake holiday. Uh, you can find out what Judge It has to say about it if you check out our website, which is www.fleurdelyclub.org. That's the Fleur de Lee Club.org, F-L-E-U-R-D-E-L-Y-S hyphen, little dash, club, C-L-U-B dot O-R-G. That's F-L-E-U-R-D-E-L-Y-S hyphen club dot org, the Fleur de Lee Club dot org. Glad you're here. Hope you'll stay. As I've been reflecting over the last year, it occurs to me there's always two things that run through the podcast, conspicuously and as subtext. The first theme, if you will, is that revolution and those people who practice it as their first order of business immediately attack our Lord Jesus Christ and his church. The second is that there is no revolution in history, either a short one that lasted a week or one that continues on even to now, and I would include the United States and France in that number, which has in the aggregate, in the aggregate, given more rights to the people than it has taken away. I defy anyone listening, and in the friendliest and most polite fashion, to provide examples where a political revolution from within has made the country it took place in more Christian by any objective measure 
such as laws passed or societal mores done. And secondly, in the final analysis, is taxed, punished, and regulated the people less than before the revolution. I think that is self-obvious, is a product of the godly people who dwell there, and not because of a godly government that rules there. When we succeed and we are happy, and we live and we love, and we do all these excellent and good things, they're despite the government and not because of it. More often not these days, the government might not be on what we consider the Christian side of morality. Now, can you imagine if this is how life is with these obstacles purposely put in our way? Can you imagine how beautiful life would be if we did have governments which, like Pandies, loved us truly? I can tell a man or a woman or a child or an adult, I can tell each of these people that I love them, and it makes sense. It's a rational statement. But when did it become acceptable to think, let alone to preach, that we should transfer these very human feelings of emotion and love onto abstract things like countries, which are lines on a map, and their personification? The idea that I can be in love with a country or to its artistic representation is an absurdity it's really horrible because it's so widely accepted today. And on that note, I think now is, uh, now is the time to discuss the Bastille, the storming of it. But I'm not going to use that word or Bastille Day, Bastille Day. What I'm going to say is it's the St. Justice's Day Massacre. That's what it was. It was the most unsuccessful, by definition, and successful jailbreak there ever was. So, as I know you've come to expect, get comfortable. And be prepared to be told some real truth that will help you think more critically about the world you live in and how to be successful within it. And coming now, we have Monsieur uh, coming aboard the Good Ship Legitimism. Good afternoon, Monsieur. How are you? Hello. Pleased to be with you again today. Well, I would like to bring up a few statistics, if I might. And at first, I'd like to perhaps say something to our French listeners, um, and that is the fact that every American no matter if they are as law-abiding as the snow is pure, is the, as pure as the wind-driven snow, they fear the police because, uh, I mean, as a statistic, sir, did you know that over 1%, by some estimates as high as 2.5%, no, that goes a lot to say, they don't even have reliable figures, but up between 1% to 2.5% of the American population entirely is currently incarcerated. Well, I heard about that some time ago, and I think mainly the population is composed of uh, black people, if I'm not mistaken. Disproportionately high numbers of African Americans are there, as are Latinos, as are women. There has been an over 500% rise in the incarceration of women since the 1970s, sir. How do you account for that? Now, as we know in our very clear and transparent systems of government, right, we have all the answers at our fingertips. <laughs> no, no, we don't. No one quite knows, but as far as I can tell, there was something passed in 1984 called the Sentencing Reform Act. It sounds appropriately Orwellian, and it was designed to increase consistency in United States felony convictions. And immediately thereafter, you have a marked rise. It went from um, statistics statistically speaking, we went from about 200,000 prisoners in 1978 to about 6, 1.6 million in 1994. My goodness me. And it keeps going. And it's, now let me say right at the beginning, every police officer I know 
are that they are the finest people you will ever meet as our soldiers. If it wasn't for them, we would have monsters. We'd be dead. We'd be dead, obviously, especially in America. So, but the problem is, and I, I, this is not a show to deal with the root causes, but the problem is that as a consequence of their growing militarization, and there was a scandal recently in the United States because the United States police forces across many states were being sold a military surplus from the uh, war on terror. Okay. So the police are arming themselves with military-grade weaponry, automatic weapons, tanks. Um, there's even some talk of attack helicopters. Attack helicopters, sir. Mm -hmm. um, so that means it's just like civil war. Almost. But the, 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 where I'm going with this is the fact that the police and the, and the people, for lack of a better word, that's who the opposite would be, civilians, the police and the civilians, each have become they've adapted to the situation. So they're, it's, they're managing their expectations. They're uh, creating the situation where the police expect to find violent resistors and people mm -hmm. who are getting yes. um, questioned expect to find brutal police. So it feeds into mm -hmm. each other. But there is not American today. Um, just driving down the road, as you know, sir, I've recently returned to the States, just driving down the road. And the police have a tactic where they slide out of the, uh, like the road so it's hidden. You don't see them and the next thing you know they're behind you. And they'll follow you for maybe two miles, three miles, following you closely. And at the end of it, they'll pull you over. Now, for whatever reason, this standard procedure. And when they pull you over, they'll leave you to sit in your car, perhaps 10, 15 minutes, just to sit and kind of, if you're nervous about something, kind of allow that to percolate. Now, I do not know how Americans who think they live in the freest country in the world because they vote, um, think that this is a state of affairs conducive to liberty, equality, and certainly not fraternity or the pursuit of <laughs> happiness. So my point in saying all of this is that we here in America have established a prison industrial complex. And did you know, Monsieur, that we have such a thing as private prisons in the United States? Yes. yes. We can buy stock. Actually, I knew that, yeah. Absolutely. We can buy stock in a prison system. Now, who oh, could think this is, is a good idea? Because if you know, what do people in a company want? Profit. How does that company make more profit? By arresting more people. Yes, um, absolutely. It's, it's a madness we've gone down, but I, my it's point up is building and building these clean hells across our uh, fruited democracy, the land of uh, fruited, fruited bountiful plains, we still hold the Bastille up to be a symbol of tyranny. And the Bastille, mm -hmm. 230 days ago yesterday, sir, was the site oh, no. of, I shall call it, the St. Justice's Day Massacre. Um, Definitely. I, won't, I won't dignify it by calling it after the name of Bastille. It was just a place. It was a massacre. And we named it, or we're going to offer the name of St. Justice because he was a Roman soldier, um, a veteran, who was martyred for the faith. So I think it's fair because of all the invalids who were murdered and the veterans who were murdered that we should name it after a veteran. Um, but nonetheless, we arrive at the St. Justice's Day Massacre, sir. Yes. And so... So in spite of what I've told you, clean hells, um, almost no writ of habeas corpus anymore. But all of these things, and people still say, oh, wasn't the Bastille awful? Well, we're here to say, no, it wasn't. Well, very good, yes. Uh, I had heard about the prison system in America, but I didn't think you had so many people incarcerated. It's an and industry. Of course, if you turn it into a profit, into yeah. A, yeah, an industry, 
uh, it makes you wonder because where is justice in that particular case? You know, uh, uh, you know, I think they, the same day justice, uh, justice, but uh, there's no justice in that. There system. is no justice. He's gone. Um, and I would say that for-profit prisons. I think soon, and this is when I know I will have entered total insanity in my country, that they'll start calling the prisoners clients. Oh, yes. The, oh, yeah. yes, yes. We have what, to make sure uh, our clients are getting the proper, oh, my God. Yes, what, well, what, what amazes me is that you have so many women in prison, you see. Oh, my God. Because it, it tells a lot about the state of our society, unfortunately. Almost so, 100%. Would you mind if I were to step back a little bit? Because I think in order to understand all the all the intricacies of the this uh, very uh, baleful day of La Bastille, we have to step back and understand, try to bring it into perspective. Yes. And when I considered that myself, I was reminded of uh, something which happened in 1783, 1784, which really changed the world in the Northern Hemisphere, because at that time, unfortunately, we had a major volcanic <coughs> eruption which took place in Iceland, and that eruption caused great havoc throughout the Northern Hemisphere, and I think it even touched uh, Asia, India, and Northern America as well, you see. Have you heard about that particular eruption which was called the the volcano was um, was has got a very difficult name to pronounce because it's uh, from I iceland it's called the lucky or grims vont uh, i'm sorry i don't know how to pronounce that i don't that. speak icelandic either <laughs> no so anyway it was a there was this particular uh, episode which really frightened the population and if i'm not mistaken I think that about 25% or even more of the ice island in Iceland uh, population died as a result of that because the lava would flow all over the place and destroy plenty of villages, you see. And uh, if I, from what I have read, this was an extremely brutal uh, um, event which poured out uh, an estimated 42 billion tons of lava basalt lava you know oh, yeah. uh, and the clouds were poisoned with uh, hydrofluoric acid and oh. sulfur dioxide now it sounds uh, you may say that okay but that's in iceland right but you see it went so high in the atmosphere that the the wind carried it throughout the world honestly and um, it changed the the, the face of um, of the climate, you know, it was like a, a, a small climate change at the time. It and was. it had huge repercussions, you see, on the uh, agricultural front, on the medical front as well. And we have reports in France of, of uh, that uh, particular event because well, the priests. Obviously, the one tax that King Louis should have been thinking about was the carbon tax. If he had put a carbon tax, <laughs> exactly. then we wouldn't have had the volcano. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's very interesting, yes. It, you see, it's very interesting because uh, throughout the ages or centuries, we get the same problems, don't we? You know, When we're talking about the justice system, when we're talking about the letter of the cachet and yeah. the apparently very unjust, unfair system, when you talk about the prisons in America, I wonder, but you see in France, it's the same. You see, you may have some... Uh, 
state concerns and then they will imprison they will find a reason to to, to jail people if they want to you see um, it's devilish because the people once you have a, a, a group of employees to say nothing of employees in the government bureaucrats once they're in place they do not go away they do oh, not and yes and this is a very interesting point that you are bringing up because I read some some time ago that in fact the civil servants that you had under Louis uh, the sixteenth were the same under the French Revolution and then they were the same under Napoleon and they were still the same under the Restoration. Can you imagine that? The system changed a lot, the legal system changed as well with the legal code and all that, but the civil civil, civil servants managed to stay in power as well and today don't it's 19, today. it's 1984 sir um just like orwell predicted the final revolution will be by the bureaucrats the professionals teachers lawyers and the like for just the sake of taking power so i do believe that and looking at them how they managed to survive the one thing that we can say is they've grown they've thrived um the bureaucracies across the world are now they're enshrined in a way. It marked the start. I would say, in a certain sense, yes, it was the start of all the problems for for, for our Maj His Majesty the King King Louis. Because uh, in 1783, uh, this uh, <clears throat> volcanic eruption caused many problems, and the farmers started to complain. They complained because they had. Um, well, there were ailments as a result of that particular hot summer, and then uh, the, the, the thunderstorms occurred, and there were hailstones. And hailstones, this is something w which will be recurrent uh, throughout the, that particular period. During these 10 years, starting from 1783 till 1793, there were so many uh, climate, climate problems, you see. And so the famine uh, are the the riots, you know, the bread riots started mm. at that time because what occurred is that the the, the farm needs uh, to plant for the for the next harvest, you see, uh -huh. because they wanted to feed themselves so that they didn't have much seeds to plant. So as a result, the 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 the, the areas, the, the marketplace didn't have much grain either to sell or what was sold was sold at a very high price and it started the speculation. You, see? you know, it's, it's, it's clear, sir, this is a keen point you make. Um, it's clear to me that this year, 1783, because of that explosion, this is also the year I would say that King Louis was at the height of his popularity. Exactly. The, French, the, the kingdom, kingdom of France had beaten the British in the American War for Independence. Exactly. Things were going perfectly, and then... And, and then, then it's all climbed down, and, uh, it's, and then it crumbled mm -hmm. and uh, now if you that that was the first uh, incident so to speak which we, that was the cog, the first cog in the wheel and then then after that we could also say a word about the Cagliostro affair with the necklace of the the queen's necklace yes. you see that also damaged prodigiously the image of the monarchy particularly although the queen uh, had nothing to do with it she was incriminated and the oh, reputation of, of the queen went it's down we the drain the starting media. from that we call it in the U.S. media a hatchet job. That is, you just go in and attack the reputation with charges, and no matter what, it's like radiation. It doesn't anywhere. Yes, it does. Anywhere it near does. you, it's bad. And the the funny thing about it, I don't know whether it's funny, but what happened is that although the king wanted to have severe punishment for the 
for the famous, for the infamous cardinal or bishop de Rouen, the one, the, the guy who, who in the first place brought the money to buy the necklace, you see, yeah. wanted to have a very harsh sentence, a sentence imposed on him. But, through, but, but in fact, the magistrates and the par parliamentarians, you know, decided not to oh. uh, condemn him. And oh, there that were people went, that day, perhaps. And and that was very bad because the reputation of the queen got w w even worse after that because the population was on the side of the cardinal de Rouen who was who was a scoundrel in a certain sense you see oh, he was, he was like also Talleyrand. a womanizer by the way yeah he was just uh, like Talleyrand he was about as much of a bishop as Talleyrand was exactly there were, but he was a very high nobility yes. so he was uh, untouchable in a certain sense. He was sent to, to various missions. He wanted to be prime minister, that guy as well, you see. So 1785, that was also a very bad year for the, for the monarchy. Now, if we move to 1787-88, we have the Assembly of Notables. There were two assemblies, actually. And it, it, there again, the magistrates or the nobility damaged the reputation of the king because the king was much in favor of reforms but the nobility was sticking to, to their own grounds and they wouldn't have any reforms particularly the parliamentarians you you know they were the robe nobility and didn't they didn't want to have any taxes and they wanted the poor to be taxed but not them so again uh, that uh, smeared the reputation of the king because he was not able to do what he wanted to do you and might say, he, sir, that instead of the, the noblesse de robe, we could call them the noblesse de rogue. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yes, they absolutely. Did. And, and I, 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 yes. Oh, just just to just to support your point, um, I think the more I think about it, rather, when I consider the Estates General meeting, that really was inconsequential compared to the Assembly of Notables. And I say that because Definitely. the notables, the high clergy and the um, nobility, I am sure the king initially, who's probably told this too. Oh, your majesty, don't worry. They'll be on board 100%. They'll exactly. do everything you need. And when yes. they didn't, he must have yes. felt the world fall out from under him. From what I have read, apparently the king at first, uh, let's say by 1787, was uh, already aware of the possibility of convening the Estates General. And because Lomini de Brienne, it must have been, Lomini de Brienne was the finance minister. And we've already talked about this particular yes. character who's uh, extremely interesting to study as well. And uh, in fact, uh, he wanted to bring Necker back. No, he didn't want to bring Necker back, but he had the same ideas of Necker. And at one point he said to uh, the king, oh, why don't you convene the Estates General to solve all the problems? Because they thought that the Estates General would be some, some kind of magic which would really arrange the finance of the state, which was stupid. But the king was adamant. He didn't want, uh, he, he absolutely didn't want to have the Estates General. He was, for some reason, he had some um, prescience. He didn't want that to happen. He said yes. that would hurt greatly the monarchy and the prestige of the monarchy. So he was against the Estates General. But in the end, when, when the finances got so bad, he, he accepted and uh, that was also the end of the parliaments but they thought they would win uh, over the king but they get crushed as well
by mentioning the uh, the, the the problem with the, the weather because I think this is something which is often overlooked and uh, it had a definite importance in the way uh, the the kingdom was run because the farmers you know the well let's say the laborers let's say yes. the people from the countryside you know had not much to live on live on and uh, but then speculation started because the grains were so difficult to come by and um, <clears throat> And then we will find this again when we talk about uh, the Duke of Orleans who plotted against the king, but I will refer to that in a minute. But what I want to say here is that if we turn the page now to the 1st of January 1789, what we find is that the climate has been extremely harsh. We have accounts, for example, of what took place in the, throughout Europe. You know, it's not only France, but the whole of Europe. You know, like uh, I know that in the, 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 sh the in Ireland, the, the rivers were frozen. In in on the Thames, the rivers river yes. was frozen as well. And even in it started. I think, of course, it went down with the clouds. It, if, with the wind, it from from the northern from Iceland, it went down progressively. It didn't touch the all the countries at the same time, but progressively it arrived in in Paris or in Normandy in, in particular, and then it covered the whole of France. But you know the rivers uh, they, in um, <clears throat> in the by the first of January, seventeen eighty nine, the climate was so severe. You know, people were making fires in the street because the 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 the, the coachmen, you know, are those people living in the streets or were about to freeze. And we have wow. accounts of uh, the situation in Paris, and we have also accounts that are very interesting about Marseille. Really, as we referred to about Marseille before, Marseille is a very interesting city. As we said, you know, when the, the revolution got really started, you, or before, even when we talked about the Réveillon case, you remember, I mm. said that uh, the, the, uh, the people from Marseille were, were coming over to Paris, and these guys were extremely uh, dangerous thugs, you see, and yes, they had no morals at all, you see. Yeah. They were what we call brigands, the brigands, you know, in yes. France. And, uh, and these guys were congregated in Paris because I thought they they thought they could loot uh, and pillage. And uh, this is what the mob orators were telling them, go and pillage everything. So uh, on the 1st of January, you see all over, the Fra all over France, I think the country was frozen, frozen to death. And even in Versailles, they had never planned to have such harsh weather and there was not even uh, enough wood. Or the wood they had was all damp and they couldn't burn it, you see, it wouldn't oh burn. And it's very strange because in such a huge castle as Versailles, they didn't have a place where they would uh, warm the, 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 the wood to, to make it uh, burnable afterwards, you see. It's very strange. And all, all of a sudden they had to try and commission some, some wood to, for the chimneys and the, the courtiers were living in the attic were fr fr freezing to death as well, you know? So it's a very interesting picture we have at, on the 1st of January, 1789. If I, may, if I may make an observation on the 1st of January, every good revolutionary movement, not, excuse me, every efficient revolutionary or insurgency movement has the hallmark that they prepare, they organize, and then they wait. And they wait for an opportunity when, when the government, when, call it the host if you're talking about a bacteria, they wait for a time when the defenses are weak and then they strike. 
there is That's no it. mistaking it to me when I look at the 1783 weather events and on climatolo climatological disasters, I see all of a sudden the assembly of notables misfiring. No one expected that. This is, I believe, sir, when the revolutionaries really began their operation. They were lying in wait. They did, yes. Yeah, and then when the when this storm came, they saw that their time had come. And yes. Well, actually, it's uh, hand, sir, I wonder I if do, the devil I, had a hand in that volcano. Oh yes, I fully agree with you. And, and of course, we had all these rehearsals, like yes. we said, we talked about on purpose. We talked about the Ravillon case, we talked about the riots in Brittany and we talked about the riots in Grenoble, but we could also have mentioned other riots in other places. And oh my God, it just it struck me, this makes so much sense. Think about the Freemasons, sir. All they do in their ceremonies is rehearse things. There is no one who's better for rehearsing for anything than the Freemasons exactly. probably. Exactly. And that's what they've done. And they prepared things a long time in advance. But also they managed to seize the opportunities that as they arrived on the scene, you see, yes. like the, the the Bastille was not, we, we know it's a plot in a certain sense. Oh, certainly. But on the other hand, they also took advantage of the situation because the first, apparently, the first, actually, the the, the goal of the populace was not so much La Bastille as to, to take the powder where it was. Yes. And it happened to be in La Bastille, but they had managed to grab the rifles and the cannons in the Invalide, the Invalide Hospital. Uh, but when we refer to that in detail, I will explain that. But of course, and when they were so getting the guns, they did happen to kill the mayor too, right? Didn't they hang a few people? The mob, they the did, provost. Yes. yes, absolutely, the provost. Yes, absolutely. friendly people. But you know, do you know why he was he was killed? That guy because he refused to give them the guns, and oh, so well. afterwards they took revenge on him. You see, <sighs> and uh, um, a very um, well, shall I say, a, a very sad uh, remark here is that this man did everything he could, but he was he was killed just like the poor um, the poor. Uh, governor of the Delaunay, who was a, oh. a very nice person in a certain sense, and he got killed, and uh, he got killed, he got butchered, actually. He got butchered, he but we have to explain that. And they would say, you know, there is this French, at the time, there was this uh, particular song, which was oh. very famous. Sarah. Sarah, Sarah, Sarah. Oh, my, yeah. that, that song is wicked. Yeah, when, when I was very young, I used to hear it often. You see, ça ira, ça ira, ça ira, les aristocrates à la long terme. Oh. Now, what does that mean? Hang the, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. Hang up the nobles by the, by the telephone. By the lantern, actually. Yeah. Because what they did, first they would uh, uh, hang them by the, at the lantern. You know, the, lan the lantern, you know, there were candles. And there was no electricity, but they had candles, you see. Yes. So they would put the candles on the lantern, and that would uh, illuminate the city. And, uh, and enlightenment. So yes, in a certain sense. And <clears throat> what happened, after, once they have, they've hung that person, they cut, chop his head off, and they carry it on, on a pike. You this know, that's, sir, so I'm brutal. jumping ahead, but you make such a good point again. It struck me as, all right, France, July 14th, 1789. All of a sudden, the people march. All right, I understand that. They go from the, the Invalide to the Bastille, I understand that. But then right after, people who had heretofore been normal, civilized people start putting heads on pikes. 
Well, actually, uh, quite honestly, these are not normal people, are they? Uh, I mean, don't. if you're a normal person, even if you're living in this, in this 18th century, I don't think you just uh, go and kill anybody like that. Put as head on far as the fa famous, um, the, this uh, ma uh, merchant, uh, provost, uh, Flessel, who was the head of the... Um, Yes, okay, he was the head of the merchants. Like the, he was like the mayor, kind of, right? Yeah, he was like a mayor, okay. Yeah. And he, he got butchered as well, but he got butchered, you know, because uh, I think the Duke of Orleans wanted a number of heads to fall. And particularly if you consider what happened to uh, the, uh, the, the this uh, poor Delaunay, he got killed in that fashion as well. You see, a butcher just uh, chopped his head off. You know, this is... And then they, they could be recompensed for that, you see. Oh. Because we will ne never know the truth, but I, I'm sure there must have been something like that going on. Well, you know, and as Karl uh, Marx said, you know, revolutions aren't a garden party, and if you want an omelette, you must break some eggs. Well, actually, Mirabeau as well, uh, to come back to that guy as well, he said that, okay, La Bastille, there were some dead, but you have fat fatalities, and it's absolutely understandable. So he would... As I've said previously, um, Mirabeau, who had no morals, would justify the killing of all these uh, uh, soldiers and uh, just because the insurrection had to take place because we had to change the regime, you see. Oh, yeah. So if you're, if you're the, on the side of the victors, it's okay. If you're on the side of the vanquished, it's another story. But of course, you won't have anything to say because you've been vanquished. <laughs> so uh, so this is the, the problem. So uh, again, uh, coming back to the... Um, 1st of uh, January, 1789, yes. uh, bread was missing. You see, bread was meat. There was a shortage of bread throughout France. And uh, if we specifically uh, look at the suburb, do you know that the city of uh, <coughs> Paris is composed of various suburbs? There were about... Uh, today, we talk about the arrondissement yes. districts. At the time, they had suburbs, you know, and the Saint-Antoine or Saint-Anthony suburb where the Bastille was located and erected was a very important and popular area. And during that period, uh, 1st of January, 1789, uh, there was a famine going on in the sense that the population was uh, starving. And uh, the population uh, of Paris was about it depends on the accounts that you read, but it was between 700 and 800,000 inhabitants, okay? And uh, which is quite a lot. Largest okay. city in Europe at now, the time. Yes, at the time. And as well, now we consider that uh, the, uh, the revolutionaries who, who attacked the, uh, the Bastille must have been something like 1,000 people, you see. Now, in the, to come back to the St. Anthony or St. Antoine suburbs, mm -hmm. where the, uh, this uh, Bastille is, was located, uh, there, there was a priest uh, who was feeding 8,000 people out of 30,000 poor people in his own suburb, you see. So the priest, again, were playing a crucial role uh, in trying to alleviate the suffering Absolutely. of the poor, you see. They, were the uh, true, they are the social, true social services that the church, not from the government. Exactly. Or the, well, the government, they only managed to, um, to assume the, the role of so, uh, social services uh, in the nine, uh, by the end of the 19th yes. century. Before that, they were not able to replace the, uh, these uh, beautiful, uh, or not 
beautiful, but these uh, incredibly uh, devoted nurses who were also, you know, uh, um, it was not Robespierre and his clique. It was only the uh, devoted Christian-minded people who did that. Amen. It the wasn't some... Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it wasn't some clip-haired, arist- or clip-haired bureaucrat from a no, nameless no. agency with a mean sneer on her face. No. And also, sir, these nuns were... They were they were holistic. They were counselors, nurses, uh, you know, psychologists, everything you need to deal with crises, they were. And if I may add something else as well, uh, throughout that particular period, the uh, let's say from 1783 till uh, 1789, the king and the queen had greatly diminished their liste civile, you know, their, the, the money they would uh, afford. Um, yes for their various charities, but they spent a lot of money on charities. They did. They, they made savings on them, and the king would take his own money and, and spend it for the poor, and he would yes. go round, and it's well known, and we have uh, accounts of that. It's undeniable, but the queen as well. The queen yes, as and well the room is to, and this is a good opportunity to mention it, at least in passing. The idea that Queen Mary Antoinette was a spendthrift is completely false. And I'm not here to bash Madame du Barry. I think she was a beautiful woman, obviously. I mean, the world was entranced with her. She was something else. But she spent more in a year than Marie Antoinette did in her whole time on the throne. And when they look at the the village La Mont in Versailles, La Mm -hmm. or um, Yes, La Mont de la Reine, yes. Yes, La Mont de la Reine. The Queen's Hamlet, so to speak. Yes, the Hamlet is nothing to do with some kind of elaborate escapism. It was as best, as best as she could. She was trying to enter the life of the people who were suffering. She did, absolutely. It was, the only uh, problem here, maybe, is that it was based on Mousseau's idea, which was at the time yes. very popular, you know, about the, the good, the good uh, indigenous man. But uh, apart from that, he wanted to come close to the, to the, to the farmers. And, yes. uh, and, you know, this is ecology before, before you know, the, before the term has been coined. You know, exactly. ecologists today, they want to go back, back to nature, to the wilderness. Everybody has got this uh, uh, inner feeling, you know, to, to, try to be close to, to nature. And in a way, she the, queen, she, yeah, the queen was forcing the aristocracy to experience this because when they wanted exactly. to see her, they'd have to visit her in the hamlet and they'd see the conditions. Exactly. She and was advocating for the poor. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you see, so uh, again, uh, the picture is extremely contrasted, but yeah. uh, you, this goes to show that, in fact, there were many, many uh, reasons why it exploded in, with the Bastille. You know, these are yes. the, all the uh, preliminaries we are talking about here. And don't forget that if the weather is extremely... Uh, uh, harsh, uh, it will also bring um, evils because you will have more rubbers if they have nothing to eat, people will start stealing and uh, if, if the roads are blocked because there are, there's too much snow or ice uh, you get plenty of problems and as a result you see uh, people are not fed I know that the king for example tried to bring some food from abroad through the through, through the the sea, but oh unfortunately, as the weather was so bad, the the ships were not able to to land or to 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 be moored. This is that wait outside the port. And Monsieur, with your kind permission, I can think of no better place to pause our story briefly before the next episode.
What do you think, ladies and gentlemen, dear all, dear friends? Now that you're learning the truth about what happened, not only in the Bastille, the St. Justice Day Massacre, but those events preceding it, I hope your mind has been opened as mine was. And I hope that you can see the desperation here. France was starving. The ports were frozen in 1789. The king was desperate to get them food. Sabotage, treason, and mysterious inclement weather had prevented that. Whereas not a few months before, the wicked and sinful and corrupt, the spider, the spider-like Duke of Orléans had ferreted away all the grain that he could get to the Channel Islands so he could on the one hand, starve the French people to begin with, his own people, and on the other, when they found a few scraps of money, charged them exorbitant prices to slow that starving by a little. And I think that aptly summarizes the situation. But, dear friends, I wonder if those revolutionaries and treason mongers and traitors and heretics, I wonder if they didn't rather overestimate their success because Although they poisoned the port and although those pirate ships came ashore and did horrible things, they didn't keep their eyes on the ocean, did they? They didn't see that perhaps on the horizon, the good ship legitimism with its sails caught by wind, with its crew stirring and with shiny, shiny cannons being hauled into position on the deck. They missed that. Do you see it? I think I do. Until next time, be well. Remember, when you're being well, that this is not the end of the season. Hang tight, because next Sunday, the 28th, we shall be happy to give you the conclusion, with a snap, a crackle, and a bang, of the storming of the Bastille, which really was the St. Justice Day Massacre. Until then, I wish you all the best. I encourage you to, to keep the faith, and may God defend the right. And my friends, mes amis, vive la Oh, yeah.